Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. talk we have a busy busy show today it is a i thought it was crazy 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 week in new york i was out yesterday on my bicycle worked out in the afternoon was biking around in a t-shirt it was like 70 effing degrees it was like spring like i couldn't stay inside i was just biking east village west village uptown downtown union square bought some fish and then i'm looking at the weather thing really seriously and i woke up and i'm like yeah really seriously so what do we have half a foot of snow out there a foot who knows? Who's measuring? Five five inches. I measured a lot. There you go. Yeah. Somebody met some. Somebody's on the weather thing. No all right. Today, huh? No school today. No the school. kids are all home. Yeah. So we got three guests. We have Andrew Tarlow and Anna Dundle. We're going to talk about their new book, uh, Dinner at the Long Table. That's the name, right? Mm-hmm. That's the name. Um, and also, just if you wanted to get, and I hate to do this to you guys because the book we're going to tie the book. Uh, the book. The title of the book is again. Dinner at the Long Table. And you're going to talk about that first and foremost, but then we're going to segue in because having you guys here is interesting. Andrew was really, really one of the pioneers um, in the restaurant scene in Kings County, Williamsburg, kind of like before anybody else was. So this is like a historical thing where we're going to get a context of what Williamsburg... dinosaur is here. <laughs> yeah, the dinosaur. Dinosaurs showed up. Dinosaurs Grandpa. showed up. Grandpa's Dinos- here. Grandpa's here. Grandpa um, Michelle Buster's going to come in after that, and we're going to talk nothing <clears throat> except cheese. Cheese is from around the world, but we're going to hone in on some bunch. She brought a bunch of cheese and honey and odds and ends. We're going to talk about that. And then Daniel Sklar is coming in from around the corner. He's got fine and raw chocolate. He's a cool dude, South African guy, who besides making great chocolate, just to make me jealous... I also know that when he was, like, 18 years old, he swam the English Channel. Whoa. Yeah, like, seriously? Like, that's one of the three holy grail swims. I'm an open-water ocean swimmer. You are. But that's, like, ridiculous. That's, like, that's ridiculous. That's that's an eight-hour swim in 58-degree water, if you're lucky. The day that they did it, they had to cancel it the first day because the water was too cold. It went up a few degrees, and they launched that swim at 1 in the morning. Ow. I don't even want to think about diving in the wow. rocky, shitty... Do you swim in the ocean? That's what you do? Yeah, like, all summer long down in Cape Really? Bay. Yeah, we did, we did. And we swam around Key West competitively a couple of years ago. Me and a couple of my buddies, and we came in second in a three-man relay, open division. We got beat by some college kids. Congrats. Was, yeah, it was good. 12 and a half miles. It was fun. It was hot, though. Swimming around Key West was kind of brutal. I mean, it sounds good on paper, but... Like, I'm used to the Atlantic Ocean out here where it's uh-huh. like 68, 70, 72. Going down to Key West, it's the water's 86. And, and the air's you, 86. You train for that in the ocean. You don't train that for that in a pool. You can't really emulate what's... You can't... The, the, the ocean's yeah. its own little thing. Yeah. It's crazy. It's nuts. It's chaos. It has nothing to do with the pool. It's not static. It's tidal. It's weird. It's choppy. It's, you're drinking water. I you're, love that. You're dealing with... The ocean's really like... It's like salty. A, 
It's salty. salty. Swinging Ocean is like a contact sport, but let's start right away. So tell me about the book. When did the idea for the book come about <laughs> and describe it to us? Because it's big and it's beautiful. But wait, I want to out Andrew for a second. Andrew um, swims in the East River every once in a while. Ooh, dude, really? Wait, wait. I have swam in the East River <laughs> really twice. <laughs> I've looked at it from a distance. But that was I was a... on Governor's Island once for an yeah. event, and we took that ferry in. Yeah, yeah, and it was the day. It was the weekend they were going to do the swim around Governor's Island, uh-huh. and I don't know. I don't. The water, like you couldn't see a quarter of an inch into it. It was just like completely muddy. And then I saw like I dead animals it. floating around. But, I mean, besides the chunks of wood, I there was, was like, young was and like not a that smart. Pit, book that was, pit bull that was laying on its back. Oh, I'm like, what the? No. This is you disgusting. That. You should have saved that. Dog. Oh, it was disgusting. No way I'm going in the, one of the other big swims, by the way, English Channel's one big one. Uh, yeah. There's another one in California where you swim from the coast to Catalina Island. That's crazy because that's got jellyfish and nastiness. Ooh. And the third big swim that makes it the Holy Grail is a swim around Manhattan. That's a huge swim. So that's what that, really. So if you're gonna do that one, no way, no way. I don't, look at the water, man. Hudson River is like, ee. I did a mini Sorry. triathlon once in Catalina Island. I swam out there. That's cold, but nice. Yeah, but jellyfish. I don't remember. Well, if I didn't you, get bit. Yeah. So back to the book. Come on, back, back to, to the book. book. You got outed. Back to the Come book. Come on. We know he's, so what, what, was the, what was the nexus? What was the idea for this? I mean, you got a great story to tell, but why the title and talk about the book? Well, we worked together on a magazine called Diner Journal for 10 years, and that was in place of making a book. We thought making a magazine would be easier than making a book, which was not true. No, Um, not true. And then, I don't know, one day Andrew decided he really wanted to make a book to tell the story in a linear way, maybe. Yeah, and also in a narrative. I mean, you know, we have been making that journal, like I said, for 10 years. We've been making recipes, making food, telling our story, like practicing and kind of like figuring out the art of writing and recipe writing and how to shoot photographs and you know and all in a very DIY way that was doing it ourselves so at some point I was done I had stopped building restaurants for a little bit and I was like in an operation I was like hey I know let's do this thing that we've been talking about for a long time (laughs) This guy's got like nine restaurants. So you know, this so is we're looking at an overachiever who had a minute and said, "Oh, too much free time. Let's write a yeah, book. Let's, let's fuck it. this up." Yeah, I mean, and we also approached the book like we were going to build a restaurant, right? So we really thought about it from a design aspect, from who we wanted to be involved in it. We really took our time and really like planned out lots of parts of it, and also left a lot of open-ended questions that we were going to figure out in the creative process of working together. So it was a great two and a half year project for all of us who were on it and I think you know ideally I think it shows and it culminates in a book that we can really be proud of and that we hopefully can own and stand behind for a really long time who's the publisher 10 speed it, they did a great it's beautiful I mean physically that cover yeah. that like yellow the jacket's got like I don't know I'm not good at describing the materials yeah, you should but... see the conversations we had around that <laughs> and what is the cover yeah. art again what is it it is a uh, it's a urn. It's it looks like a query. It looks like they it's make a, wines. How they make yeah, wines an in Georgia? Exactly. An amphora. Exactly. That's what it looked like to me. We too. Go back to natural wine whenever we can. <laughs> if you go. look in this book, there are a lot of subtle pieces of natural wine all over the place. So let's go back to the beginning. So I, I, I was actually wrong. I thought you opened Diner after 2000, 2001. You opened in the late 90s yeah. on Broadway in Williamsburg mm-hmm. at that time when literally the only other thing there was Peter Luger. That's it. Which was a steakhouse destination, all cash, don't take reservations. Yep. Guys were coming in from Manhattan with wads of money. Bodyguards. Bodyguards, drinking martinis. Oh. 
what what did you see? What was the vision? What was why then and there? Was it yeah. sort of like what Oog did with Sarah when they opened up a little bit? Long Island City sure. had nothing, and they were yeah. they were just following. I mean, they're like hippies following their own little tune. Let's yeah. do a place called M Wells Dinette, and we'll do a, we'll just open for breakfast at first, and we'll do breakfast and lunch. Which I, when when you opened, it was almost like that, but way earlier. Yeah, we only opened for dinner in the beginning. We didn't do breakfast and lunch. We, you know, I lived on Broadway. We lived down that street. That place was vacant. It was derelict. Um, what had it been? A diner? It had been an old diner. Okay. Um, if you ever see Once Upon a Time in America, that's shot there. Remember that movie? Robert De Niro was in that diner. Yep. Also the opening scene of the paper. And also the opening scene of the paper. One of Anna's favorite movies. That's how we've come sure. together. Um, and, you know, it's like... It was New York at the time where there were no rules, I guess, right? We had no, no permits. There was no one asking questions. If you wanted to put tables outside on the street, you could put tables on the street. If you needed anything, you just... If we wanted to make a fire on the sidewalk, we could have cooked dinner. We could cook dinner out there. You know, like our gas got shut off and we just set up grills outside and served inside. I think they still do this. I've, I've walked on this block of Moore Street. And yeah, I think Roberta sets stuff up. I They're like, do you have a they permit can, for this? They're yeah. like, wood smoke. They're smoking pigs. I'm like, what's yeah. going on here? But yeah. this is like the Wild West now. Right. But so that's what Williamsburg, that's what Williamsburg was like, literally was, steps yeah. across from the Williamsburg Bridge. Totally. Like, th- that was the epicenter. I mean, at that point also, that part of Williamsburg and the Lower East Side were both pretty sketchy places. Hell yeah. And so there was like a bridge that like was this a sketchy bridge to each sketchy place, right? Like, it, the Lower East Side was bad, and then you went over the bridge, and you got dumped into, like, even worse zone, right? Um, so we really, you know, the I thought we'd be playing cards in the back of that restaurant. I didn't think anybody really would come. And it turns out, as I was kind of saying, that... Well, the Gretsch building was across the street, but that, was, that, that became a condo later. Right. But that, you told me, so, which I wasn't aware, that it was just full of people that were basically yeah. squatters. They were basically full of artists living all on Broadway we, that we didn't know were there, that, in effect, needed a place to all come together and get to know each other. And we turned the lights on, opened the doors. We didn't have heat. We didn't have gas. Sounds we, like Roberta's. You know? And then all of a sudden, everybody showed up, and then we were all together, and then we got to know each other. And a lot of those people still live in Williamsburg. A lot of those people have become su- successful businessmen, successful craftsmen, family people, mothers. And women. And I was going to say mothers and famous sculptors and famous <laughs> painters of all genders. <laughs> business okay. women. Yes, business yes. women. <laughs> business women. Um, and it just happens they were all there at that moment in 99. You did Marlowe and Sons after that? That was number two? Actually, I owned a Mexican restaurant after that that was on Bedford for a while that I lost a lease on, which is called Bonita, which is not here anymore. Then Marlon Sons. Then Marlon and Daughter. Then Marlon and Daughters. Which was kind of like Marlon Sons. I remember eating there. Which one was like a combination store restaurant? Sons. Sons. Yeah. So we, we expanded Sons to Daughters. And, you know, we only buy whole animals, so we have a whole animal butcher shop, one of the first in New York at the time, and it supplies all the meat for all the restaurants. Um, and we buy directly from farms, directly, you know, cows, pigs, lambs, chickens, all direct in. And we only break those down ourselves and then distribute amongst our own restaurants. And you were doing that from the beginning? We were doing that pretty early on, yeah. I mean, the early, on, early days, we used to have uh, in the back of diner a butcher room where Tom Mylan worked. And Anna was there. Um, Since day one? No. Uh, Since, like, I would say third year in fourth year in we basically at some point really recognized said where does our food come from we can afford to really like 
find out and connect the dots for everything, including wine. And we went to France and did all those things and wanted to buy food from farmers and not buy food from strangers. And so we really set out to connect the dots of where the meat came from. It was a big part of the restaurant. Well, again, you were very much an outlier and pioneer in that regard, too. I mean, that was... You know, it's like yeah. a cliche. I mean, the yeah. brand of Brooklyn has become yeah. sadly a cliche. The yeah. idea of nose to tail is a cliche. Yeah. Sort of, these are all things that I'm like, okay, it means nothing to me anymore because it's totally. become completely accepted. So at that time, you know, like when we bought our, bought our first cow, I made a deal with a farmer and we put it in the back of a car and they literally thought they wanted cash right then and there to buy a cow. The, the farmer was like, you want what? You're going to buy what? How are you going to, what? No one had bought a cow in that capacity. And at that time, we didn't even know a restaurant owner or a restaurateur or anyone who actually bought an animal that big and tried to handle it themselves, right? Like, we all bought boxed beef that showed up, and you cut open the cryovac and, right. you know, let it dry out a little bit, salted it, and put it on the grill. Like, no one had—we even figured out how to, like, break the animal down ourselves like, with old books. Like, what was your training? before? The, were you a chef somewhere? No. No, no, no. I didn't. I never actually broke the animals down. I just, <laughs> I just told people to do that. You so picked, I am. I've you always been the right the person to break down the. I found the right person. Yeah. I'm more of a producer in that capacity. Well, you've produced incredibly well. A, you were the right place, right time, pioneered to be the really one of the first restaurants in Williamsburg before Williamsburg became what it is today. And at this point in time, just the Wife Hotel is your most recent. Uh, Achilles Heel is my most recent, which is over now. But that's you're in moving into Greenpoint. Yeah, Greenpoint. So Achilles Hill is a is sort of a beautiful little project. It was a a bar from the turn of the century that had been boarded up for a really long time. And it really is like someone saying, Do you want this vintage car? You're the person who would really like cherish it and take care of it and polish it and bring it back to life. And I said yes. I mean I wasn't really looking for that next thing, but this place was so special. And if you guys ever hang out there you'll see there's a really I mean, I hate to say, like, energy or vibe or whatever you want to call it, but, like, it's a really special place to be. I think the, I mean, what's happened is, man, man New York City just keeps growing. Yeah. I've been here since 82, and I was, we did a show out here in Williamsburg a while back, and I was joking in the stand-up to the show that when I came to New York, if you thought about New York south of 34th Street, if yeah. you thought about Soho and Tribeca, back then, my first apartment in yeah. 82 was in Tribeca, it was a ghost town. I mean, there was nothing down yeah. there. Uh, Odeon came and then drew up in Montreche. But I mean, those neighborhoods, I mean, places that we now consider so great and so livable were so off the beaten track. And yeah. now that shifted over to Brooklyn, sure. which has expanded in every direction, north, south, and west. So Greenpoint's like an extension of Williamsburg, totally. linking it to Long Island City, yeah. and it's just going to become one big cool spot because the G train runs, the M train yeah. runs. So to tie it all in, I worked at the ODM for five years before opening no way. my own restaurant. No way. Yeah, I was behind that bar. Oh, that's a great experience. Well, that explains a lot. I saw it from that. Was viewpoint. Brian still involved? Or? No, Brian was gone. It was only Lynn. But um, well, that's better because Brian was a bit of a douche. Yeah, we had a we had a <laughs> we had a good vantage point. Yeah, no, that's a great spot. That's great. Great people thing. Yeah. Good for you. Um, and and you so you just came. What your capacity was in the restaurant? Brains. Look at her. She's the. Look at me. She's the grown up in the room. Oh yeah, we're on radio. Um, She's the brain. She's I a was hired as a weekend barista. And um, became friends with Caroline Fidanza, the chef at the time, and Andrew. And they were talking about the magazine and knew I was a writer. So I was, like, working at McNally Jackson and at Marlon Sons and Kochek at a salsa night and working, you know, like, really? trying to write poetry. <laughs> and um, and barely getting your rent paid every month. Oh, yeah. Then? Yeah, yeah. And then, like, running 
like to Marlo and Sons to open it at 5.30 in the morning like a crazy person. Um, and I, so I got to work on this on this magazine for 10 years and really become an editor and a writer and a kind of like non... Uh, genius. Genius. I got to become a genius in a non-linear way. So that was, that's great. Um, yeah. So, and then I've bartended at all of the restaurants um, since while working on the magazine and now the book. So, because you guys are, you, you live in Brooklyn, obviously? Yeah. Okay. So, where do you see it going? Because there's all the old folks, you know, my generation Including of folks, that are just, you know, they're, a couple of the old people, they get sort of stuck being old in the past. They're just yeah. like, they have, oh, it was better back yeah. then, and blah, blah, blah. And well, I don't see it that present. way at all. Huh? It's important yeah. to stay present. Stay present. Well, the tra- fact of the matter is the food scene is just, it's, it's some, I was a chef in New York for like most of my career, and what's happening now is so much better than what we were doing. And we were like three-star New York Times, blah, blah, blah. But the ingredients here are a thousand times better. I mean, yeah. you just, the cheese is better, the bread's better, the butter's better, the wine's better, everything's better. So anyone that's complaining, sorry, just <laughs> stay north of 57th Street and die. Um, <laughs> Williamsburg's crazy. And uh, yeah, there's the hipster thing, but so what? I had hair down to my ass when I was a kid and I wore funny clothes. And, you know, I pretty much would have okay. fit right in. Yeah, it sort of turned out okay. Where do you see this going? It's just an expansion into... So now we have Williamsburg into Bushwick into Bed-Stuy. I mean, it's just, it, it's not yeah. ending. Ben, Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, Ridgewood. It's not going to end. I mean, I guess I think that's the beauty of living in a place like New York City, which is that you can just, you wander and you find new places and you meet people who have been living in those places for many years and, and you learn about them and you continue learning about what There's people are doing tons around you. of housing right. stock there. I mean, that's why everyone's moving through them, right? And we have repurposed a whole industrial neighborhood. Even around here, if you look, still, how many low-lying buildings are there? Yeah. If you really wanted to like populate a lot of people in Bushwick, there's still so much room to go. Even in Williamsburg, there's still so much to go. Not saying all those buildings would be beautiful, but there's definitely room to continue to grow this city, which we have not even touched. One of your restaurants, Raynar, I remember came on my radar because it was known for the wine list because it has a lot of natural wines. Yeah. Before we went live on the mic, I asked you when you got interested, and you shocked me saying it was like 1998 because I know where the wine world was then, and I have um, good friends with Alice Firing, with yeah. Pascaline Lapeltier, yeah. and so we'd all talk about this. We knew about 10 Bells. Yeah. Um, this is before all that. Well, before all that. So what got, So you knew Michael Skernick, who had that long, long hair. as a hippie, hippie dude that's really got a great portfolio. So but. it wasn't Michael Skernick. It was actually this guy, Donald Breckenridge, who's actually a writer, wrote for the Brooklyn Rail. He worked Fiction for, editor. The fiction Brooklyn editor, Rail. sorry. He worked for a company called Vineyard Expressions, which is now defunct. And he was, sell, he was my only other wine rep. And he was, Vineyard Expression was bringing in Darden Ribot and bringing in all the original... Um, natural winemakers that had no representation at all, who really didn't know what they're doing. And I was probably the only one who was not smart enough to buy it. Right? I mean we were we were just buying it because we wanted it. we wanted to taste something different and we really didn't know what we were buying. They didn't weren't using the word natural wine at that point. They weren't talking about natural yeast or sulfur or any of those things. They were just like, here's Crozier Hermitage, do you want it? It's got a black label. I was like, Yeah, I want that. Um and so I kind of got lucky in that I met someone who handed me natural wine before it was labeled. And then it became something I became passionate about. Because then you got hooked. Then I got hooked. Yeah. And also, we're very passionate about farmers and all those cliches right. about where our food comes from. Right. And really, we wanted wine that was grown by the person who made it. We wanted someone to make something that tasted like something and wasn't just a prepackaged beverage. 
And we definitely got hooked. And we have seen people like Renee Moss. I've certainly seen Dornery Bow, like, really figure out how to make these wines. And they're so much more polished now. Moss from War? Renee Moss. Yeah, Shannon Long. Yeah. His love, his wines. So Renee Moss, here's a great story. Here's another great coincidence. Our first chef for 10 years, Caroline Fidanza, who owns Salty, right before she took the job at Diner, she somehow stayed at a winery in Loire Valley and lived at Renee, Renee Moss's house for a whole month and a half. His first day in New York with his wife, Agnes, came to Merlin Sons, like our opening night, brought two bottles of wine and said, do you want to try it? I have no one who represents me. How? Then they went to Jenny Francois. Right. Now they're at LDM. Right. They're part of our family. Renee, you know, the boss moss, he's like the king of the whole thing. Yeah, his wines are fantastic. Fantastic. And the truth is, I mean, much thanks. I've got to give tribute uh, credit to Pascaline because she's really she's from Loire she's a, a, sure. a rock star totally and when she was a, I don't go uptown much but she was a reason for me to eat at Rouge Tomat back yeah. when it was uptown and you know she would just blind for me blind for me yeah. I'm like what is I, I love this I ate at her new class just uh, two weeks ago it was great yeah it's great she's really got me and I, I could live and drink nothing but Loire Valley wines yeah, for the rest come to of my life so you'd only drink natural wines yeah, and then I mean, like, place like Freaks, Freaks Me just Freaks Me able to open yeah. up in Gowanus, and their whole wine list is basically Gamay and Chenin Blanc. I mean, it's 85% of the wine list. Yeah, it's and exciting two- to see the Italians. You know, at Romans, we, own, we have an all-Italian list, and see what the natural winemakers are doing in Italy is really interesting. The name of the book is... Dinner at the Long Table. It's great. So if you're, if you're really... I mean, this is like a great long look back at the evolution of your history, which really is the history of sort of the modern current restaurant scene in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which has led to places like Roberta's, which led to gentrification out here. It's, it's, it's a great, great story. Thank you, guys. We Thank you. We had 20 yeah. more minutes. And if I don't have your contact information, do you have a card? No. Leave, leave me something with my I'll engineer. write down my email. Yeah, write down your email for my we'll engineer. We'll do some wine. Yeah, we'll do that, and we should talk about doing something, because this is a great story for PBS. Okay. Tell me, thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, my next guest. We don't need to break, because my engineer is so good. He's like, Mike, we don't need to break. We don't need to break. It just sounds like we have the same Great. in our company. Michelle Buster of Forever Cheese is here. We're going to get her on a microphone, have her pop on some headphones. I'll write some emails. Um, they're right over there. Thank you again, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So Michelle Buster and I met years back when I was doing a little radio show called Food Talk at WOR. Six days a week, an hour a day, live, call in on Monday through Friday, and Sunday a two-hour show out of my house in Cape May. Um, And back then, I got your story, but let's just bring it all up to date again. So what... You've been in cheese for how many years? Over 20. What got you into cheese? Because... I mean, I, I go back 20 years, so we're looking at the late 90s, and Cheese in New York is Murray's, Cheese in New York is Fairway. There's just not a lot going on. Well, they're all our customers now. But basically, I started by accident. I never saw myself being in the cheese industry. I thought I was going to be in wine. I was working in sports. But you never quite know always what you're going to do. And I was <laughs> working. <laughs> I was living in Europe, working in sports. And the really short part is I fell in love with this guy. His family made cheese in Italy. He came to the States to learn English. Then he was unhappy with his distribution. So I moved back to be with him. I got tired of hearing him complain and said, teach me cheese and I'll put it where it needs to go. And that's kind of how it started. So you packed up a suitcase, got a bunch of phone numbers back then and started knocking on the doors of Steve Jenkins, of Rob Cowfelt. Hi, I've got this cheese. 
Kind of. He had already done a little bit of work working with his former um, importer. So he knew that the future for us was specialty cheese. Mm. So I did some research, learned about, yes, Steve Jenkins, Rob Kofelt, Mrs. Gooch's out in California, whatever it was. And yeah, just started taking. We started with one cheese, which I brought today, Fulvi Pecorino Romano. The only Pecorino Romano still produced in the countryside of Rome. So is this the one where the he's got, when you fly into the Rome airport, his sheep are like in that area? Well, they're not there's some there. It's all over Lazio. Because I've been. Lou DiPaolo's is friendly with this guy. But Lou DiPaolo's a long-term customer. He yeah, has so Fulvi in the window. So, so when I... Because years back, I filmed a couple of shows in Italy, and I always use... I mean, Lou, who, um, if you want to talk about Italian ingredients, and you want to go to school fast, call Lou DiPaolo. I mean, he's been the ambassador of Italian ingredients in that little great store of his. And now, of course, his son Sammy's involved. And so Lou and I put together an itinerary um, of some places he really wanted me to see. So I visited this guy. So you're right, because when you think of Pecorino Romano, the name, it's sheep's milk and Romano, meaning it's from Rome, because that's where it came from. That was a style of cheese. And now 99% of it comes from Sardinia? It's true. Yeah, it's sad, but it's true. Yeah. Both for economic purposes and um, mainly because it costs us a lot more to produce the cheese in Rome. The sheep produce less milk. It's rich in fat and protein. And over time, we also... Personally, us, we age it twice as long as the other one. So when I started, there were basically three of us. And then there was another company on the fence. And, um, and then they still had the name and they still had thing, but then they produ- produced mainly in Sardinia. But kind of what it was is my Italian guy said, I said, Pierluigi, I'll help you put your family's cheese wherever it needs to go in the country. But if we're successful with your family's cheese, you got to let me go to Spain. Because I'm super in love with Spain. We don't have great Manchego in this country. And I really wanted to find something to bring here. So you did. So you went to Spain. And I mean, how did you... This is like the early days. Just knocked on doors, internet research, asked people. How do you find producers? I looked for Manchego for over a year and a half. So the first cheese I actually found from Spain was what we know today as the drunken goat. So I found this... Wonderful goat cheese, soaked in wine, people afraid to sell to the States because they weren't sure what that meant and how to do it. And when I brought it, you couldn't even pronounce it because it was queso de cabra albino. And nobody ever said it right. So one morning on the Stairmaster, I came up with drunken goat, and that kind of solved... Seriously, that was the marketing genius. That's too funny. I didn't know. It's everywhere. It's a big... I mean, that's a, that cheese has got great distribution. That, I'm very proud of it. That's, and, it's your, you but, should be. That was your doing. And, and Fulvi's like the brand. Um, but more than that, what I learned over these years was that what we did made a difference. Made a difference in Europe. That we work directly with mm. every single one of our mm. producers, and it's over 80. And, I mean, I used to cover my mouth when I said I sell cheese for a living, because people used to raise an eyebrow and say, really? That's weird. And now I stand up proud because I see what it's done to the lives of so many people that we work with, and it makes me proud. Good for you. Well, it's, I mean, I was at the panel yesterday, actually. It was, I still was saying it was such a nice day. I couldn't stay. It was like, why stay in? So I was just biking all over town. I'm like, I haven't been to Palo in a while. I locked my bike. I walked in. It was like 5, 15. I was number 29, and they were on like number two. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and I know how Lou works. I, and I don't want anything special. No, 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 don't send you. No, no, no. I'm going to wait. And it was like, yeah, it was 45 minutes well, later. Well, he fed you during that. 45, 45 minutes later, yeah, I got my, my moment in the sun with Lou. He's the best. Um, what was that first cheese you had to meet while we were doing that earlier interview? That was called Casatica. And what that is on a. What earth is that? <laughs> that is a Bloomy Rhine buffalo milk cheese. <sighs> 
from Lombardy, from a producer called Quattro Portoni. Talk about this, because, I mean, we could go get geeked out and go deep in any, any region we want, but let's just want to go on sort of broader strokes. I mean, at the end of the day, cheese is milk, and milk comes from cows, or in this case, from these kind of buffalo or sheep or goat, which produce a lot less milk. But even then, like even within sheep, there's variations of, depending on what kind of sheep it is, what kind of milk they're going to make. And then there's micro variations. What's the diet? So just explain this to me a little bit, like how, how much that changes the... Style of cheeses. The terroir? Yeah, the terroir. The terroir. From animal to what it's eating to the seasonality. Because Lou would talk to me, too, about like how you know Parmesan Reggiano, when they're feeding on grass in the spring, it's a much richer milk. It produces one style of cheese. When they're on hay in the winter, it's a different style of cheese, even within the animal. Well, that's a really long thing to do. I know. It's a horrible question to ask. Because within each each category, whether it's cow, goat, sheep, or less in buffalo, because there's not too many different varieties of buffalo making cheese. The animal itself just has so much to do. I mean, I'll just use drunken goat again as an example. I didn't like goat cheese when I started what I was doing. Like, I didn't know I was set up to do this. But when I went to Spain and I tasted this cheese, it didn't taste like you were licking the underbelly of an animal. It was creamy. It had really good flavor. And that was because it was made from Morthiana goat's milk. So the Morthiana goat is rich in fat and protein. It also produces a lot of milk, so it's a perfect Mm -hmm. animal for people to use and to get great value out of what they're doing. When you look at, like, sheep, for example, and you look at manchego versus um, castellano or something else, where the sheep are and the type of sheep, how much butterfat is in their milk or how dry the area is, it really does have an influence, even if in today's world so many more animals live inside and are given feed than outside because their inherent nature of who they are and what they do does change it. Um, If we start on Parmigiano, that's a whole other thing because there's more subtle differences now between whether something's in the hills or not because to have DOP cheese you have a feed that's regulated but part of that is also subsidized by what you must grow locally so that's how it's influenced how many cheeses now are in your portfolio 20 years out about close to 400 no way that's crazy i would never have guessed that many me either so you're the importer distributor how would you describe what you what you're doing we are the sourcer the importer so it's the your... mom and the pop that you know how, how nurture you? all of so these so it's coming in you you you're you're in like mixed containers and you pull them in at the dock because you're we, not bringing in straight containers of cheese. Sure we are. You're bringing in straight containers? We bring in straight containers of cheese from Italy and from Spain, not from Portugal. Portugal is a, a much smaller marketplace, and since the regulations in our country are what they are, and the E. coli parameters are as stringent as they are, it's taken away the available cheeses to us, since the nature of most of the cheeses from Portugal are those really soft, creamy, amantegado styles that are so hard to be, you know, under 10 E. coli, even though we do have a few of them. And the cheese from Croatia that we do, which I haven't had you try yet, the Pashkisir, that gets shipped to Italy, and we do straight containers, so that we load everything, we take care of everything, we know how to rotate it and make it happy. But it took a long time to get there. 
So if I'm going to, I'm trying to think where I buy cheese. Um, not Anne Saxel because she's all American. Um, that cheese in the back of the Italian, uh, back of the Essex Street Market, the Italian bun. What the hell's the name of that store? I buy cheese from them. I buy cheese at that new cheese board that's French. Um, sometimes at Citarella because I buy my meat there. But you're, I, we would find your cheese like everywhere. Murray's, Zabar's, um, Eli's, Whole Foods Market's a big customer, Fairway Market, DiPaolo, wherever you have really great quality. And with Jesus Murray's now, you could include there. Kroger, because that was this great expansion that Rob did a couple of years back that turned out now Kroger is, is buying back the equity of that for 20-some million dollars. I mean, congratulations, Rob, but he's been the cheese guy on Bleecker Street since the beginning. But so that means you're probably in a bunch of those Krogers all around the country. In Yes, there's a certain set of some cheeses that are in the, in the Murray's um, that are in the Kroger. And when we go back to Rob, it was like... Maria Batali on the corner, Rob in his corner store, and us walking in with our one and then our four cheeses. It goes all the way back to that. It's too funny. So funny to have you here and to have Andrew talk about, like, Williamsburg in 1999 when there was nobody over here either. So you guys prefer. Is American – is it my imagination? I don't know the answer to this question. Is American cheese consumption going up? It is. People consume a lot of cheese here. It's no, I going. Mean, up, yeah. I, I mean, I just just anecdotally, because again, I'm going. Have been here since '82, and you know, man, I was working in great restaurants, and there really were uh, even through the '90s. I just uh, up at up at Peachelane. He began. What's his name? Max McCallum. Max McCallum, who's like uh, now, God, he's master for Michel. Master for Michel. But I remember like going there, and it was like kind of formal, 67th Street near Lincoln Center, and Max had this Garridon, and there was a cheese. And I remember Chanterelle had a cheese card. I remember Chanterelle, right? Yes. But they were really outliers, and maybe Gramercy yeah. Tavern. Gramercy, but this was really this really in the cart. Yes, I mean, I used to like pound the pavement and go crazy. I mean, I had to stop reading the um, the food section because I was going to have a heart attack because I was trying to get to every single place to bring that cheese. It was so hard. It was so hard to sell cheese at the start. I mean, we worked day and night all the time just trying to figure out how to do it. And West Coast, are you kidding? You know, people had to put on a bikini and you're there trying to sell, you know, cheese. I was, you know, did whatever it took, wore my mini skirt, got down on my hands and knees. You know, it's like, come on, please, we need you to buy some cheese. That's funny as hell. Um, so let's taste some cheese. So cut, cut something for me here. So you brought, I mean, one, two, three, you brought like a dozen cheeses. So let's talk. What is this? Well, this is La Dama Sagrada. This is one of our newer cheeses. And very popular. People want raw milk cheese. So this is a six-month-age raw goat's milk cheese from La Mancha, Spain. And it's really hard to find a really good, raw, consistent raw milk cheese at also a really good value so that you can bring it to a cross-section. I'm finding the most amazing jewels. But, you know, cheese is not inexpensive. It takes a lot to make it. It takes a lot to age it. So it's expensive. This one is very accessible. And I named, I named it after um, a song that one of my favorite Spanish bands sings from El Ultimo de la Fila. So I had wanted something after that. And so it's the Sacred Dame. It's delicious. It almost reminds me, it's a horrible thing to say, but maybe I'm totally wrong, but like a really great aged, like a cloth aged cheddar. Hmm. I don't That's know, for me. It just has this beautiful, what else do you have sitting here? I have Pashkisir. So actually, before Pashkisir, we're going to have Lubergere Pichin. This is Italian from Piemonte. It's raw cow's milk, and it's made with thistle flour, so it's completely vegetarian. 
So that's the that's the that's what gets it to curd. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I've heard the, they're doing that in Italy more and more. They are. But it, what was really unusual is to have a cow's milk cheese with thistle mm. was unheard of. This mm. was the first one I met. If you want to squeeze the cheese, I love to have people squeeze the cheese. That is hysterical. So this is semi-soft. It's creamy, but it's got really good milkiness to it. And it's got lots of flavor, and it just rolls off your tongue. Yeah, and the other thing with... I've been eating tons of cheese the last, really, the last nine months. I don't know why. Like, I just discovered it, and now it's like almost every night, but... Like that great dairy flavor that just goes on. There's this like finish to these cheeses in your mouth that's just remarkable. Like just like wine, like it starts as something, morphs into something else, then like thirty seconds later, it's something else yet again. I love the things that you can just you can just feel how unified it is, and it's just well made cheese, and it just kind of says mmm. Which is there. And it's raw milk. But so you don't have to have a really astringent cheese to be raw milk. So I have a lot of people just making fantastic cheeses that are supremely flavorful. And yet they can be creamy and mild at the same time. So Portugal is a place you want to be more in. But it's hard to bring them in. It's hard to bring them in because they're very delicate. Uh, There aren't a lot of producers that I've found. There's like either the super industrial guy or there's the teeny weeny little guy who once upon a time I could tiptoe up all the mountains. You ask me how I find cheese. Sometimes it's a trade show. Often it's my friends who have shops. Sometimes I'm sitting at a restaurant and then I know that I've just hit love at first sight. And I could just go anywhere and just tell somebody that I was going to help them bring the cheese in. And I was going to do it all for them. They just had to make great stuff. But you can't do that so much anymore. Yeah, it's true. So you Formaggio have... Essex is the name of this. You sell them? Uh, they do buy our stuff. Okay, yes. yeah, because he's got a good little counter there. Exactly. And then who's, what's this? So so this is, these are all raw milk cheeses, meaning not pasteurized. Uh, just the, some of them that I brought you are, and some aren't. Okay. So there's a bit half and half. And then what's the illegal stuff that my cheese friends smuggle in for me that I'll get like the secret text message to come by the store, ask for so-and-so, and... The French ones usually, yes. the camemberts of yes. the world. And specifically, the other. yes. I mean, I had one a couple of weeks ago. It, we let it ripen for another couple of weeks. We had these little spots around the outside. Took it home, cut it in quarters, and I'll never. It was like a revelation, like the first pop in my mouth that it was like a granularity to that rind. I mean, the cheese itself was beautiful, but it was like an explosion. It was like holy f. I mean, it, this was like a minute and a half's worth of just. I don't think I even want to swallow. I'm not going to sip my wine. It was just this evolution in my mouth of just this microflora that was going on. It was, what what is that? Well, the really great thing is, you know, the FDA was conducting a lot of testing on raw milk cheeses because they were bent on trying to find the reason that we shouldn't have raw milk cheese here. And they wanted to make it the culprit for, you know, take the fall for everything. But they concluded after two years that no matter what they tested, that it is raw milk is not the cause of whatever might be a problem. You know, if there are problems with the product, it's not necessarily because Mm. it's raw milk. So Mm. that's a very good thing for all of us there. But they're not going to move anytime soon, from what I know of, from less than 60 days. And that's what the law says. You can't bring in your little illegal fun things. And everybody loves the soft creamies. But and I'm trying to bring some in that are 60 days that are soft, creamy, and they're still challenging because I do everything by boat. So what you're talking about is super special, but yeah, that's not going to become legal. Yeah, I know, I know. It's just it's a goddamn treat. All right, what's this one? Pashkisir, which means uh, cheese from the island of Pag. So it's from mm. Croatia. It's uh, sheep's milk, 
It's a sheep that produces, we were talking about all those different animals. So most sheep might produce a couple liters of milk a day, and this sheep only produces a half liter of milk. He only gets six months out of it. In fact, my first two years trying to find a sheep on this island, I never saw them unless I climbed over the fence in the backyard of somebody. I saw two and I got really excited. But it's an island with like a lot of wind. So it's kind of like the Adriatic blows onto these brambles. They're not even really grass. And then the sheep eats that. And it takes almost 12 sheep to make a wheel of cheese. So it's like the sauterne of cheeses. It's like a vine gives you a half a glass versus a vine gives you a bottle. I just... You know, it's... It's delicious. It's beautiful cheese. You get, that, you get a little bit of that grassiness, but you get this nuttiness, and you get the butterscotch. Well, that's what I was getting. Get that's the, what I was getting, like that nutty, almost burnoisette, but butter, butter, butter. I mean, just real richness to and it. And that's aged a year, and that's what's so cool about it. It's just got this unusual texture and things. So I went on vacation to Croatia, and I kept telling people, don't talk to me about cheese, don't talk to me about work. But this guy said, I'm sorry. You know, he was, he was a friend of a friend, and he was supposed to show me around. He said, you got to meet me on this island because I'm sorry. Paga's famous for cheese, and I heard you're the cheese lady. And I kept saying, I'm not going to think about this for work. I'm not going to think about this for work. And six months, the Adriatic and the cheese on my mind. And so I said, I got to go try and get this cheese. But it took me five years to convince somebody to sell me. So do you have a, I'm just trying to think for people that are listening, Michelle Buster's my guest, Forever Cheese is her company. Does you, would your website help people find your cheese? Yeah, for sure. It would, okay. Forevercheese.com. Forevercheese.com. Yes. There are some places listed, and otherwise, like, you can always write us and say, hey, I don't see it there. So you just have to write us, and we'll look it up and tell you where to get our product. Thanks so much for coming in. It was really great. The cheese is delicious. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. It's Con- so fun to see you. Yeah, continue success. It's been like, what, 10 years since last time we were on the radio. I know. Together, I know your yeah. business has just grown exponentially since then. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. My next guest is Daniel Sklar of Fine and Raw Chocolates. He's going to be here in one second. We have two spots. For, oh, one spot we're going to run. Actually, you'll be here in a minute. So a spot for Tecola Vita. That's who it is. Who are my old friends, the Colavita family, that make this show and my PBS show happen. As in, they underwrite it. So stay tuned. We have a spot from Colavita. Then Daniel's going to talk about what he does around the corner on Siegel Street here in Bushwick. Stay tuned. Folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I actually use at home? 
that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. All right, we're back on live. The mic- microphones are hot here. We're back. Yeah, join us. Grab something to go, and, and we'll go get a tour of the factory afterwards. All right, Daniel, pleasure man to have you here. So I met you. I think this is the first time I met you. It was three years ago, plus or minus, when I had Michael Rogak on this show. Right. So I've known Michael for a long time because Michael's like one of these OG Brooklyn candy guys, yeah, chocolate he's OG. guys. He's OG. I mean, That's he's, right. He's like third generation back in the day when like there were people making chocolate bars and candies all over Brooklyn, uh-huh. all over Philly, all over the big cities of America. And they just right. sort of went under the bus. Thanks to, I guess, Mars and Hershey and whatever, then maybe chocolate habits change. Yeah, well, he, uh, his explanation is that uh, the, the generations that followed didn't want to go into candy. They wanted to go into finance. <laughs> it's true. I don't think his kids are in his business yet. Yeah. But, and I couldn't figure out what the connection was. So, um, I, so he was here, and I think Jimmy Carbone. So it was a whole crew oh, of us. Right, Jimmy was it was here. a whole uh-huh. crew of us. And I said, let's just yeah. all have dinner afterwards, because that's the one thing about doing a radio show in Roberta is you yeah. can just slide out of the studio, sit next to the wood stove, order a couple of pizzas. Oh, and it's great. It's great. And, and the yeah. food, I, I've never had a bad plate of anything here. It's just all killer. Yeah. And then Michael told me later, oh, yeah, so this is this guy. He's got this place around the corner. And so you tell me your, your story. So you're South African originally. You can tell by the accent. Yeah, well, yeah. I couldn't tell. He could be British or Australian. We, yeah. we don't fucking know. We're Americans. French. <laughs> yeah, right. you, you got a passport. I don't know where this guy's from. Uh-huh. But but what got you into chocolate? What was it that drew you? Uh, and what year? What time? Give me well, time frame. Okay, let's see. Um, I became a chef in 2005, 2006. 2006. So, like, um, went to cooking school, became a chef? No, I did a... Got a job in a restaurant. Uh, apprenticeship. Uh, yeah. I, actually, I was a raw food chef uh, out in the middle of nowhere, in, in the desert, in uh, uh, the place called Patagonia. Um, oh. Right by the border. Yeah. Uh, by, between Tucson and Nogales. And... Um, I, I, you know, I, I got into like this this big uh, vegetarian raw food tip. Uh, um, it just kind of appealed to me. Um, before that, I spent two years in finance. The, those were the first two years in New York City. And I came, I came. I was a little African kid. I came to New York City, um, and I wanted I wanted to get into the world of finance. Um, you know, live large, play hard, work, you know, work hard. That whole thing. Uh, although. Playing hard is much more fun. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I got into the kitchen. That was sort of like my entry into the kitchen. And, um, and then uh, I started playing around with um, chocolate and became obsessed. I'm, uh, I, like it was crack. This, it, was, it was literally a, a drug for me. And um, uh, I was making batches with my, my friends uh, after shifts. And, uh, uh, you know, at some point I wanted to throw chocolate into salads. And then, and then, you, then you have to stop and think. This is not. This is it's not appropriate anymore. You you need to take this seriously uh, and and look at the the passion and the excitement and follow follow that. And so so I just had this uh, like sheer um, unadulterated enthusiasm that 
that drove me into chocolate. I mean, I, I, I joke about having a chocolate blood transfusion. It's, it's in me. It just got you. Yeah, you got, just, you got the bug done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, that, you know, like I just started playing with food and uh, that's, it's so creative and that whole process and, and ingredients and working with your hands and the, so many of the concepts of chocolate appeal to me. Um, the, um, the exotic nature of, uh, of, of its origins, where it's grown. Which is um, an amazing story for people that have never been in zones, the kind of subtropical, tropical zones where chocolate's grown. Yeah. See those pods hanging, see how it's harvested, see how it's collected, fermented. I mean, it's this, it's, it's it, like nothing's changed. Like that part of it's been the same since forever. Yeah, forever. For, uh, since since the West discovered it, you know. Yeah, and, and sadly, for the most part, as is true with so many things, the people that do the bulk of the the heavy lifting, the people that are actually going out and oh. harvesting, oh, yeah. ripening, and fermenting, yeah. make the least amount of money. Oh, completely. And the top end of it's the guys that's the CEO of Mars or Nestle's or Hershey's or whatever they are now. Yeah. I mean, it's always been like sort of exploitation. It, it really is. I mean, um, cocoa is a commodity. Uh, I think we're South, we're South America, yeah. Indonesia, South Africa. I mean, these are places where you have huge populations of people that have nothing anyway. Completely. So if we throw them a few breadcrumbs, we can get chocolate. I mean, it's bizarre. It's like gold because, you know, gold's a commodity too. And then it's turned into jewelry and art, which is so valuable. And, um, and to, a large, to a large extent, chocolate is also an art and it's, and it's valued as such. So it goes from a commodity, which is valueless, to... To, to this thing that people re- like really cherish in their lives. Yeah, it's gotten to, I mean, if I have one more person sort of roll their eyes when I say, you know, I buy bars of chocolate from you or from like-minded uh, chocolatiers and, and I'm paying $8 or $9 for, I don't know what it is, a couple of ounces. And yeah. I don't care. It's worth it because I'm not peeling that foil off and eating the entire bar on the subway ride to, from the Lower East Side. To here. I mean, basically, no. I'm buying these chocolate bars because at the end of the night, as a pie, I'm not really a sweets guy. I'm not really a dessert guy. I love cheese after dinner. But like a quarter, a piece of chocolate, uh-huh. like, like one of a section of like two. That's perfect. Completely. Because like 20, yeah. 20 minutes worth of just nuanced flavor that lingers and lingers and lingers and it's just great oh yeah if that's not worth eight dollars that's by pleasure per bite like whatever but so we've sort of i like that metric but we've come to accept i I think that you know sort of uh, generationally your store mass brothers i mean it's like this is like kind of mainstream now in the foodie world i really we're willing to pay a premium for wonderfully sourced fair trade super super well-made chocolates yeah i mean we're we're all about quality and love how did you, know. you get a hold of Mike Rogak? I want to hear that connection. Oh, yeah. Okay, so um, uh, when I first started making chocolate, uh, I was in my loft in Williamsburg, su- super underground. Another one of these um, stories. Yeah. Like, like the Mass Brothers. Yeah, movies. I mean, that's, that's the way it's, you know, it's how, how you get schooled in chocolate in Williamsburg. Um, so I tried to make a chocolate machine. And um, <laughs> <laughs> tried to make like yeah. a conching machine? Like what? No, it was a guitar cutter for truffles. Um, and um, so, which is probably the most basic chocolate machine that you could could make. You know, I, and forget about electronics. We're just talking mechanics here. And the first time I brought it down, blade came down, and the machine imploded. So I was like, all right, cool. I never am going to attempt to make a right. chocolate machine. I'm not a design day. engineer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then it came time to purchase a conching machine. Or, uh, sorry, a tempering machine. I wasn't going to do that by hand anymore. Um, and I called up um, Hilliard's. They're a very good brand in the in the based in the Midwest somewhere, and I asked them for a reference. 
uh, I think it's always a good idea if you buy a machine, get a reference from from the machine company for someone you can go speak right. to them, see what like see what it looks like, see yeah, what see, what, see what it looks like. To, uh, speak to that 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 person about um, uh, you know, uh, is this company good with servicing and repair and follow up and help because you need all that stuff. So anyway, I go see Michael. It's a, it was actually about this time of year, maybe eight years ago, and he was in Valentine's Day, and I brought him. I was making two products at that time. Um, I brought him one. Uh, he, I mean, my, Michael in his in his factory in Valentine's Day is just it's like no, it's crazy. It's like the, yeah. you don't call, don't call Mr. Rogak between the middle of January until whenever the hell Valentine's oh, Day. Oh, it's, it's mayhem, over. man! It's mayhem. like yeah, it's like Christmas at Walmart. Yeah, know? and he's, he's he, managing. He's the doing eighty percent of his business in the in the thirty days before. Yeah, so he's like, okay, great, come back to me in eight weeks. So um, I leave the product with him, um, uh, and then. Uh, I go back and we chat about the machine, and it's a great machine, and and then it works out like you know what, uh, you, you're an amazing person, uh, and I need I need somewhere to legitimize my business. I can't do this in my loft anymore. Oh, I got um, you. Uh, maybe we can do something. I'm like, dude, let's like m- my shit's dope. Like you know, let's uh, you're you're amazing. Why don't we do this? Uh, and he's got the facilities. He's got that. Where, what part of Brooklyn is he in? What's the name? Sheepshead Bay. Sheepshead Bay. Okay. Yeah. It's like Avenue U or something. I've been there. I mean, yeah. it's like, it's old. It's that old, old Brooklyn. Yeah. Avenue R. Yeah. It's uh, not gentrified. And not strand. No, not gentrified at all. Yeah. It's old school. Yeah, it's real. And it's got, it's a family business. It's like yeah. wife or aunts or sisters. And like a few old women are in the front and they yeah. sell candy. Uh-huh. It's like a candy. It's like an old fashioned candy store. Uh, it is. It is. I mean, it's authentic. I mean, he makes his own marshmallow out back, but it's... He's got all those standard things. He's got the marshmallow with, Uh like, the chocolate roll with the nuts in it. Yeah, oh, yeah. His caramels are... You can't find caramel like that. They're crazy. Yeah, totally crazy. They're, like, freaking great. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a Michael I'll get you. I'll get you on the show after after Valentine's Day because he's great. So that was it. So a couple of years you worked with him yes. before you opened up your own store. Yeah, and then I opened up in Bushwick five years ago. So I've seen chocolate. I mean, I, I know Jacques Torres forever, and I know the guys from Mass Brothers. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not going to profess to be an expert on this, but it seemed to me like almost everyone I knew that was buying beans in burlap bags was doing a real careful job sourcing those beans. Um, then they would get the beans, cut open the bags, put them on sheet pans, and roast them. Yeah. That's like, that's classic chocolate making. Yeah, that's the way it's You done. don't do that. And I, well, um, so fine and raw originally um, is a, a raw chocolate, raw cacao. So we, um, we, don't, we don't roast. Um, couple um, seasons ago, we did release um, a, a new collection, which is half roasted and half raw. So we do, we do um, roast on that. And then um, for the raw stuff, we use exactly the same techniques, except we don't, we don't push the temperatures that high. We keep the temperatures very low. Um, this, you kind of have to geek out a little bit about the science and the raw food industry o- o- over this. It's a conversation. It's a lot of controversy over it, actually. Um, and we've taken a very simple approach to the to the temperature threshold, which basically, if you can if you can sprout a nut or a seed at a certain temperature, it's still alive. Hence, raw food. Uh, and if you can take it to that that temperature and still sprout it, that's good. And we use that temperature. Um, so we are doing all of that classic. Um, chocolate making uh, it, I mean that's pretty old school and um, artisanal as well um, you, ha- you have to be a lot more um, attentive to the beans when when they're in ovens on sheet pans 
um, you know, you, you get a roaster and you throw them in the roaster, it's going to be easier to get a, a more uniform roast on that. Uh, so, so in, you know, mm. in chocolate making, then, then we come into this whole idea of, okay, we've got someone, we've got a roaster and then we, we've got a machine and, and do you want someone, do you want a person doing it or do you want a machine doing it? And, um, there's, uh, it's a good conversation. So, so in your case, you still are sort of, because you and I have talked about all sorts of random things and nothing to do with food. Um, like you swimming the English Channel, which was mentioned earlier on the show. Yeah. Still things epic. 18. How old were you? 16. 16? Yeah. Were you the, have you, are you the youngest person ever to swim the English Channel? No, they're, they're much younger than me. Really? Oh, yeah. What? Uh, uh, who are these people? I think uh, people in single digits. I think maybe, no. I don't even want to know. 12? That. That's crazy. Maybe, That's yeah. insane. Yeah. Eight hours and change. What was the ocean temp when you swam it? Um, You'd remember, 59, 60? It was 11 degrees Celsius. I can't do those conversions. Yeah, uh, what's that? 55. It's cold. Bloody cold, because you know yeah. there's no wetsuit. You're just you're wearing no, a Speedo uh, and a real thick cap and, yeah. you're, and Vaseline and, and whatever. It. Yeah, you, you vas up and you, you jump in and go. What did you do to prepare for that Not swim? that you need that much Vaseline, because there's so much oil and muck in, in between those. It's is the, the heaviest traveled. Uh, it's super traveled. Yeah. And you started that swim, which is terrifying to me. You told me the story that you you flew in. You were they only allowed that swim from like May through September. Yeah, that's when the waters are t- technically warmish, that's warmer. Right. But even then, there's variations because of tidal currents and changes and upwells uh-huh. and all that. So yeah. you went the first day you were supposed to do it. They canceled because it yeah. was too cold. Yeah. Then it went up three or four degrees and said go. That's right. But you launched that race at one in the morning. Yeah, it's it dark. Yeah, one in the morning. They take you out on the boat and then you jump in and you swim to the beach. On the English side, Dover. And then you touch the beach, Dover, and then you go. Boom. Jesus, so you start backwards and then you go back again. So you yeah. can't, why don't you start from the beach? Whatever, that's just how they do it. Yeah, that's just, well, because you have to start with the boat. You could start at the beach, but everyone, you know, you get in the boat, you, get to, you go to the harbor, then, so you drive to the harbor, then you jump in the boat, and then the boat drives to the, <laughs> to the you, you got to find the right spot where the channel's going with the currents. The currents, and, right, right, because yeah. it's crazy. How were the conditions of the water that night? Was it windy? Was it flat? Um, it's never going to be flat because it's a channel. Uh, there were decent conditions. They were they were actually kind of favorable to us. It wasn't. Uh, it can it can get it can get choppy out there. Yeah, that's what I hear. Yeah. I mean, some that one guy you sent me the link. One guy was saying I like chop. Oh, you yeah. sent me a link about some guy that was swimming and he was describing like. Yeah. He, and they said if you get on the other side of the boat, we can protect you from the chop. And he's like, I like chop. And I'm <laughs> like, okay, you uh-huh. may be the only open water swimmer I know that no one likes chop, dude. That's it's like so getting true. smacked in the so head. True. No, it really is. It's just like getting hit in the head every three seconds yeah. or, or more often, and you drink a lot of water. Uh, uh, yeah, it's not water. It's sewage. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So back to fine. And kudos to you. That's epic. Um, Thank you. So when you, you correct me if I'm wrong again, but I was I've been in your store and I've kicked the tires. When you're conching the chocolate, uh-huh. you're controlling the temperature at that time as well. Yes. And you're conching it for longer at a lower temperature. Uh, yes. Uh, well, it's it's true. That's what we are doing. Um, that's sort of that's just sort of a natural um, progression of our technique. Right. Yeah. 
Where did you, where did you find? How did you find? Because you've got again, Fine and Raw is the name of the chocolatier. They're right here in Bushwick. If you live in New York, it's Valentine's Day coming up. If you want to get a great gift for somebody, go to fineandraw.com. Oh, that's right. And we have a Valentine's Day party on Saturday. If you like to dance and you like house music, we got some insane stuff for Saturday night. I've seen the back of his store. They clear the equipment out. They've got a disco ball and a light show. Yeah, and. And it's Brooklyn, folks, so use yeah. your imagination. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Saturday night at the factory. for van- come. If you're single, if, if, you're, um, if, if it's complicated, if you're in a relationship, whatever, come. It's going to be fun. It's going to be, there'll be truffles. We'll have cocktails. Um, great DJs. Uh, some, some, actually, New York Institution DJs, uh, Danny Krivitz, uh, if people know him. They, That's ridiculous. That's yeah, cool. Yeah. Congratulations. So where did you find those hazelnuts? Because when I think of like the best hazelnuts, I'm thinking of around Alba, Italy, where yeah, you think Georgina. Right. Uh-huh. That part, I mean, I've had those. They're amazing. Yeah. They're like day and night over everything else. Oh, completely. Yeah. And then you have, you, you're like, oh, you got to try these hazelnuts. I get them from Oregon. And I'm like, really? Uh-huh. West Coast? But just, I guess, okay, whatever. I'm, yeah. I'm American. Yeah. And they were spectacular. You, your hazelnut bar, again, the last couple times I had one, I remember like, that's like back to the point of like, why do I pay $8 for chocolate? Because like two bites of it for the next 30 minutes, you're tasting nothing but like the best chocolate and the best hazelnuts. How'd you find those hazelnuts? Yeah. Those, so I work with a lot of really passionate people. And um, one of my friends started an online artisanal food shop. You know, so like uh, you go into one of the cheese shops in the city, uh, you know, you go into Bedford Cheese Shop and, mm-hmm. and they've curated all these products. Right. So she was doing exactly the same thing online. And she came to visit me uh, in my loft in Williamsburg back in the day, and she she loved these hazelnuts so much. She she brought me two pounds of them, and she goes, "Yeah, I brought these for you. These are my favorite. Just try them." And she introduced me to that region, um, and then I started researching it. and And as it turns out, the, uh, the hazelnuts from from around uh, Oregon there are the the mind bending. It's like going to a farmer's market in the middle of summer and getting heirloom tomato versus going to a bodega on the street corner in, in the middle of winter and, right. and getting a tomato. Getting, you getting, know? It's, it's, they were. Yeah. I mean, you had them at the store and I saw them, but you were making the bars today. We were filming and I, and those bars are just insane too. That's, that's, that's a great story. Yeah. Um, Fine and Raw's the name of the company. So Valentine's, Saturday, this Saturday the party? Yeah, this Saturday. This Saturday, if you're listening, yeah. you got the invitation, man. You heard it from the man himself. I know it's going to be a smoking deal. I'm not allowed to do those things. I have to leave town. I have to come home on the weekends. I've got a kid somewhere. That's hey, what happens in Bushwick stays in Bushwick. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Sklar, fine and raw chocolate. Get out to Bushwick and try his stuff or buy them online. They're great. He's got about, what, a dozen flavors at any given point? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've got yeah. the usual salted, you know, the mesquite smoke, salted smoke, sea yeah. salt. Yeah. Um, a van- I, I don't do white chocolate too much. He's got a great white chocolate. Ginger, yes. hazelnut. Uh, espresso. Espresso. And then a couple of, like... Like oh man, that little chunky thing you have is yes. nasty. Uh huh. Those uh, those are dangerous. Those are real dangerous. They're literally like the almost the size. Of, they're a little thinner than a chunky, but a little bigger than a chunky. Yeah, they're like a chunky kind of flattened out a little. Uh huh. But holy shit, these are not your grandmother's chunkies. Those are just ridiculous. Yeah, those um, they're really essentially um, those are big fat truffles in disguise as chocolate bars, and um, deep down inside, if if you're honest with yourself, you want to eat a truffle. You do. And the coconut one, if you like coconut, lights out. Oh, uh, yeah. That's like my yeah. favorite. That's yeah. ridiculous. I try yeah. not to buy those. Thank you. I'll, yeah. I like the whole thing. Daniel Score, thanks for coming on. Fine Raw Chocolates, the name of his company. Support them. They're great. I'll see you next week.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.